Welcome, everybody. It's your time to add up. We're, we make education your business. And today it's your time for the inaugural episode of Ed Up International. I'm your host, James Schaefer. A little bit about myself. I've studied abroad in France. I've lived and worked overseas in Eastern Europe, North Africa, and Southeast Asia. I was a principal designated school official and international marketing director at a private ESL school. I was founding director of an ESL institute on a university campus. And now I am the director of international student recruitment and enrollment at Turo University in Times Square and serving on the side on the board with Study New York and serving as their program committee chair with Study New York. So thank you to Alvin Freitas and Dr. Joe Salustio of the EdUp Experience family. I had a conversation a few months ago with Elvin, and here we are with EdUp International podcast episode number one. For our maiden voyage, we have two remarkable voices in international education. First up, I'd like to introduce Mr. Ben Waxman. He is the CEO and driving force of International Education Advantage, I-N-T-E-A-D, or INTED. If you have a chance to subscribe to their intelligence blog, or if you ever see them at a conference or on a webinar, I highly recommend that you join. So here he is, Ben Waxman, CEO of International Education Advantage. And Ben, could you please tell us about your experience in designing your own study abroad adventure and what it's like living on a kibbutz? <laughs> Thank you, Jim. That's a very nice introduction. I um, I did attend a, or actually design my own international education experience back in the 1980s. Um, actually left college a little dissatisfied with my experience and headed out to uh, the Middle East and studied at Hebrew University for a summer session, uh, credit bearing, and then to an ESL, not ESL, a Hebrew language program um, and working as um, a day laborer on a kibbutz and also traveling uh, extensively throughout Europe and Middle East. Um, and that was about 10 months overseas before I came back and entered the college world again. Um, and it was life-changing for me. It was really just amazing and a time that was very turbulent for me personally. So that independence and that learning opportunity uh, really made a big difference in who I became. Yeah, it's actually interesting you say that because uh, I think some of the theme we might get in today is uh, helping international students to find themselves when they might arrive somewhere and feel like a fish out of water. Definitely. Yeah. Um, all right. So thank you. Uh, our special guest is Dr. Lenitra Berger. She's the president and chair of the board of directors of NAFSA, the Association of International Educators. She is the director of African and African-American studies at George Mason University, also associate professor of history and art history. Uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to episode 700 of the EdUp Experience podcast, where Lenitra joined Joe Salustio and me. So I'm honored to pre present Dr. Lenitra Berger. Uh, 
Could you say a few words about performing at Euro Disney in Paris playing clarinet? Thanks, Jim, for the introduction and Ben for joining as a co-host. I'm so excited to be here today to have this conversation. And I really appreciate the question because it allowed me to think about the very beginnings of my interest in international education. I was fortunate to be selected to be part of the All-American Marching Band that performed at the opening of Euro Disney in Paris in 1992. And this was the first time that I traveled overseas. I was very excited. I played the clarinet. I was excited for the plane ride. I was excited, you know, for everything about the hotel, the 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 other students, but most importantly, I got to perform with the Temptations during the grand opening ceremony. So that was an unforgettable experience, you know, everything from the rehearsals to seeing them in person and to being able to perform with them. And then of course afterwards we did some tours of Paris. And I just fell in love with the city. I thought it was so beautiful. It was so interesting. I wanted to go back and just learn more. So I didn't forget that experience. And I spent the next four years thinking about how I was gonna get to college, what I was gonna study in college that would allow me to go back to Paris. And thank goodness I was able to do it. And I went back in 1997 for a study abroad um, through Stanford in Paris and it changed my life. All right, thank you. I can I can relate because my study abroad semester was uh, also in Paris, uh, and it was eye opening. And it my first trip overseas as a high school student was also to France. All right, so we can relate there. Yes. All right, thank you, Lenitra. Okay, uh, I want to turn things right over to Ben, and let's go right into talking about promoting NAFSA's role in international education. That's great, Jim. And and I am so honored to be part of this maiden voyage, this first episode of Head Up International, and specifically to be across the, the camera here from you, Lenitra, and all that you've done and all of you that you've researched. Um, it's just a great opportunity for me personally. So thank you for this. Um, we've been involved with NAFSA for about a decade now, and just fascinated by all that NAFSA does. And I think it's really challenging, right? That you cover so many bases and we're on a number of the listservs, like old school listservs that are incredibly valuable to our community. You know, the questions I see popping up and the answers that come from the community, it's, it's both um, heartwarming to watch the community come together, but also just factually helpful, like operationally, really powerful. And I love that you guys still operate those listservs and they're so well attended. Um, but I wanted to ask you about that role that NAFSA plays. It's really challenging. You've got the one person shop and then you've got schools that have tremendous resources. And so trying to be all things to all schools. Um, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to explain a little bit about how NAFSA gets all that done. You know, the role you play in our community is huge. Thanks, Ben, that's a great question. And I'll start by um, kind of explaining my personal journey with NAFSA because I think it's relevant. 
Um, I joined NAFSA in 2006, and my first NAFSA conference was in Montreal. And I was a new member. I didn't really know anything about NAFSA. I didn't know much about um, the, the, the services that it provided. And I just wandered into a MIG meeting. I was there um, because I was working for a trade association of HBCUs called NAFIO, and we were doing a study on internationalization at HBCUs. So naturally, I thought the HBCU MIG would be a good place to start. Little did I know that I would meet my people in that room. You know, I was welcomed in. Um, everyone was so excited about my research. I made so many contacts um, who I still work with and who are now also leaders in the field. And it was it was that moment that I was hooked on NAFSA. Um, and I began taking more advantage of all of the resources. And so I'm excited to say that I'm going back to Montreal at the end of this month for the bioregional conference. And so I haven't been in Montreal since the my first NAFSA. So to go to Montreal as a brand new member and then to come back as president and board chair and and see NAFSAs at a bi-regional, I feel like is 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 an un incredible and I feel like unlikely evolution, but speaks to the power of NAFSA. NAFSA is a place where people can feel that they belong, where they can connect. Um, what you're describing with these listservs is this phenomenal hive mentality where people are are working, they're they're busy, they're they're doing a hundred different things, and they're coming together and bringing this knowledge together that's producing this sweet sweet honey um, that is is making everyone's lives better. And so for me, that that is one of the 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 core values and benefits of NAFSA is being part of that community being able to connect with people on a number of different levels, either at a regional, either at a town hall, either at our, our annual conferences, um, and one-to-one and -to, -one to know that you can pick up the phone and call another NAFSAN and say, hey, I'm a NAFSAN, I'm on this listserv, I have a question, can you help me? And that person will likely take that call and they'll help you. So if you're not part of NAFSA, you want to be part of this group because it's such a fantastic group of dedicated professionals whose overall arching commitment is to the values of international education. Now, that's the big picture. The, the, the specifics um, come from all of the different resources that we offer. Um, and we can't offer those resources without our phenomenal, wonderful NAFSA staff. Our NAFSA staff in the DC office work tirelessly to make sure that at every level of NAFSA that members have what they need. And they are looking to keep their finger on the pulse of the field so that professionals who have questions who, and who have issues are able to get those done. So, um, you know, currently, you know, NAFSA is working um, through our strategic plan, which is to educate, advocate, and innovate. And that's our guiding force in terms of how we do this important work. And we are uh, such a large association. We're nearly 10,000 people. So as you said, you know, there are people who are one person offices. I was there, I feel you. Um, there are people who are running, you know, very large organizations or very large international offices. So there's a, a wide range and diversity of, of, of types of people who are, who are NAPSA members. But one thing that's really important is when we speak with one voice as a field. 
and NAFSA's advocacy work is unparalleled in Washington. You know, people uh, and in other industries look to the way that we do advocacy and they take, um, take examples from that. Um, but also in our ability to speak truth to power in the field, to speak on behalf of our students, our scholars, and our members for what matters to us. So that is critical. And in the past couple of years, we have faced a number of challenges but during COVID, during um, the, the Trump administration years when we were trying to make sure that international students had what they needed, um, how we rebuild post-COVID and, and move forward and innovate. All of that is connected to public policy. And our public policy team is excellent in how it's able to both respond to challenges as they arise, but also to anticipate what's ahead and provide that information to our members. So there's, there's really no other association that can do all of those things. And we do that because we are a large association and because we have a wonderful staff that can really understand the field broadly and look at it in multiple directions. So this is this. there's been no better time to be a NAFSA member and to be part of this community. Hey, I so appreciate what you shared in terms of, you started with the welcoming, the feeling of belonging, which is critical. It always has been. It's, it's even more focused on today. And then the expertise. When I talked about the listserv, what stuns me frequently is the level of expertise shared. Um, people chiming in with 20, 30 years of experience saying, here's how I would approach that problem. It's like, wow, thank you. Where, how do you get that other than these kinds of forums? Um, and then you went to advocacy, which is, I, I was hoping you would mention that I think it gets too little attention overall, and the voice of 10,000 and all of the universities that you represent speaking to Washington and saying, this is a huge export industry. And I know people have questions about calling this an industry because it's education, but the reality that we see is it's an industry and it needs protecting and support from the federal government and the state governments as well. Um, and then you mentioned something about innovating and helping institutions innovate. And that's something that is really important to us as a consulting agency and support to our clients. Um, and those who come to us typically are in the throes of trying to figure out how to be more entrepreneurial, how to innovate. And I think NAFSA does a good job of that too, in terms of bringing people together it's really hard to innovate in a bureaucratic system like a university. Um, the shared governance issues so much keep the organization from moving forward in any rapid kind of way. And so getting consensus and trying to move forward is, it seems almost impossible sometimes. And, and so I wondered if you might talk about that process of, um, well, the strategic role that NAFSA plays at the federal level, but then the strategic role that the International Education Office plays within a university and moving that strategy into tactics. How do we actually, so it's great to talk loftily about expanding international education, but how do you actually do it? Um, and NAFSA plays an important role there as well, I think, as a, as a convener, but tell me where, where you fall on that. 
Yeah, so I'm working on this at a number of different levels in both in my individual university position. So I fully appreciate all of the dynamics that you set up. And then, as you said, you know, overseeing this very large organization um, that's trying to serve, you know, so many members at, across different institutions. Um, I think that one of the most important things that we need to be able to do as international educators is have space to dream. Every day we come into our offices and we have students who have needs. We have faculty who have needs. We have budgets that we have to submit. We have um, paperwork, um, visas, um, visa applications to deal with. And at the end of the day, you can feel like, you know, what, what did I do? I, I did a lot of things. I answered a lot of emails, but did I really think about five years from now or 10 years from now for myself professionally, but for my position in my office? And it's really hard. It's really hard to do all of those things in one day. And I've, I've had some just some really poignant stories from members who have spoken about just their personal challenges and their professional challenges on a daily basis. And all of that gets in the way of your space to dream. And that's really where the innovation comes from, where you just you have five or 10 minutes to sit and daydream and think about the what ifs. What if I could bring these students together with these students? What if I could launch this type of program that would serve um, so many different faculty? What if I could get that grant application submitted? That's really where the innovation comes from, is that space to really think outside of the box and really be imaginative in your thinking. And so NAFSA's role as a convener helps to facilitate that type of collaboration. There's nothing um, more energizing to me than meeting somebody at another institution who says, well, here's how I address that problem. And just that one tweak that they offer can help you think through a bureaucratic hurdle that can help you overcome that challenge yourself. So that convening helps people to talk to each other across those siloed institutions. But also, I'll go back to the public policy work and the things that we do to help our members do their jobs. That facilitates people having more time to think creatively and to think imaginatively. So it's not just about us convening at conferences, but it's about doing our work in a way that 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 helps us to have more space in the day to do the things that matter to us. Um, it's the, the the creativity and and the imaginative thinking is really the space where where we can innovate. Otherwise, we we are going to stick to the status quo. We're going to do what we need to do to follow the procedures, or we're going to follow tradition and do things the way they've always been done, and not be future forward looking and forward thinking. So the the roles that we play in providing services to help people not reinvent the wheel in their jobs um, is important in allowing for innovation, um, bringing people together in different combinations um, through our convenings helps to cross pollinate those ideas and build connections that wouldn't have existed before. So there's a lot of different ways that NAFSA's role as a large association helps to facilitate that innovative thinking. You know, I, in our, you mentioned the what ifs, and in our large conference room here, we have a small art installation that has the words what if on the board uh, or on the wall. And it's specifically to prompt that kind of thinking as we discuss all the topics that we cover. 
And um, one of the things I, I think is really challenging is creating that collaborative culture within an organization. So all the things you said, absolutely. And trying to get people to welcome the what ifs, um, I find very often that there is a resistance to that creativity and the new, right? And I always try and remind people that new ideas and innovations are born messy. And so it's not fully baked. It is not a well thought out plan yet. It's a what if. And so if we can just welcome that in and, and let it sit with us and let us be creative with it, that's how you get to a creative plan. But if you get to the what if and someone says, oh, that'll never work, you're, you're already done. It's like, but, but, but wait, we didn't even explore it. So I, I, I do totally find agree. when yes, I go to the NASA conferences, there's a lot of networking and interaction. And, and it seems as though people are very open with the, the MIGs and everything else to exploring the what ifs and pushing for change. It's really, it just lifts you, you know? Yeah, Ben, I, I can just add very quickly, because uh, I know that you're big on data and market research. Uh, and where I am now, I have full support of the provost and the VP of student services, but they're very clear that to convince the people we need to convince, we need data so that we can do what we want to dream about. Yeah, Lenitra, you were going to dive into that. I, you know, I just, I love that you have this, this art installation in your office about what ifs, because I think it's such a good prompt to help people to step outside of their, the rigidity of, of their particular positions. And, you know, I wanted to share one of my what ifs with you, because it's something that has guided my career. Um, and when I, as I mentioned, I started out working with HBCUs and internationalization. And so my big what if in 2006 was, what if the diversity of America abroad at home looked like the diversity of America abroad? And what if we could send as many students um, overseas as we have at our institutions in terms of, of racial and ethnic minority diversity? And I, I still, it's still my guiding force, my guiding principle in the work that I do individually on my campus. And so, you know, my start was with NAFSA and with the Abraham Lincoln Commission on Study Abroad and doing the public policy work to figure out how we could get funding for those types of students to study abroad. And that has been, as you both know, an ongoing process since, since then. It's, it's still moving forward. And now it's the Simon Bill. Um, and our public policy team is, is trying to get people to call their elected officials um, and get them to co-sponsor that bill because we believe that that bill will eventually pass and it will provide a means to allow more students to study abroad. So some of these what ifs really do become <laughs> reality, but we also have to um, think about the long arc of, of how these ideas evolve. As you said, Ben, some of them are very messy and they don't form into something cohesive right away, but eventually they do. So, you know, for me to start out in 2006 doing this work, I'm looking now and I look back and I see how things have evolved. And of course there are things that I wish would have changed yesterday. You know, the pace of things never moves fast enough for us who are in the field. But I can see a difference. I can see progression. And that's been gratifying. 
And I, I appreciate that. And, and Jim, your point about the data, you know, we are, we do publish a lot of market research and that's, as you mentioned, Jim, available on our website. And I know, Lenitra, you've done some amazing research as well. And without that, you you don't convince people that the what if has merit. So it starts as a creative brainstorm or whatever. And then it's like, okay, so if we were to do that, if we were to send as many students abroad as we receive, how would we do that? And that the answer to that comes from research and looking at markets, looking at student or just human behavior, consumer insights is how we look at it as a market research company um, and a marketing execution company. We can't make plans without seeing some data. I wondered if you might speak to NAFSA's role in that as well, the whole strategic uh, plan that we wish the US had, the advocacy and the data that supports that kind of planning. Yes, so as you both know, public policy needs to be data-driven and it needs to be shaped by data. So our, our advocacy department works closely with researchers and, and is very data-driven. So we have our losing talent report um, we have um, other other types of, of specific research reports that we commission that help us to decide, you know, how to advocate on behalf of members. So data is crucial in how we think about the, the currently the status of the field, but also looking looking to trends. And you know, we want to do more research. We think that there are many more questions that we have. Um, and the only way to find the answers to those questions is by doing the re research and, and getting the yeah. data out. So data is, is, is the, the, the foundations of what we do in terms of our public policy and in terms of the way we, we work as international educators. And I think one of the amazing values of NAFSA and the, the culture that happens there, your access to so many provosts and presidents and leaders at institutions. So when you put out a call and say, we would like, you know, 50 schools or a hundred schools or a thousand schools to participate in this kind of research, send us your data. We're going to analyze and give a report back and push for advocacy. You guys have the power to do that. And, and the institutions respond. Uh, I think that's another huge value of of your existence, of, of your role. And, and we've seen it happen. I agree. I agree. I am so grateful to our members because they take our phone calls. Right. Um, you know, that that's that's that not to be taken for granted. Um, that that our members cherish, love, and respect the association so much that when we ask for help, they provide us with their data. They provide us with qualitative data, you know, the institutional experience and perspective. They give us stories when we're out trying to advocate for international students and the value of international students on our campuses. People come out of the woodwork to give us experiences, personal experiences that international students have had that have changed their lives, the lives of their communities, the universities that they've attended, 
we can't operate without both both types of data. We need the hard numbers, but we also need that human touch and those human stories. That's really what helps legislators to understand the data is that if they can put a real face and a real experience right. to the data. And our members will give us both. And that is so important. And Jim, I don't know if you had something specific you wanted to dive into. There, there are a couple other things that I think I... I wanted to address in the, the conversation. Yeah, we'll just uh, a quick uh, tying up of that uh, as someone at the university who will be going before a budget committee soon. Uh, I can't just go before that budget committee with anecdotes. I mean, anecdotally, I mean, I'm in international enrollment management, but it all ties together. Anecdotally, I know that when a university makes their strong commitment to international and internationalization, those numbers aren't going to explode in year one and year two. They're going to explode more in year four and year five. And when I go before the budget committee, I have to have data to show that and can't just be telling stories about it that this is what I think because of a couple of experiences I had. So it, it will be the data that's crucial. And I'm going to use NAFSA for that data, uh, definitely. And, and you mentioned the commitment to internationalization and, and something that I appreciate more and more over the past decade that uh, institutions are paying attention to and um, conversations, really inspiring conversations I've had with Jewel Wynn from uh, yes. Tennessee State, who is the past chair or, or president of the board of AIEA, just such insights into student support. And so we're asking or promising students when they come here that they will receive this education and a welcoming environment and being sure that the institutions that invite those students actually are following through and delivering on that promise. Um, and then similarly, when we send students out and do study abroad, um, the integration and the respect for other cultures and other environments where they are and making sure that there isn't this Western approach of you know, dominance and, and colonialization and all of that. This has been a really fascinating conversation. We wanna push internationalization and we wanna make sure that there's a healthy respect and embracing of, of all cultures and not just saying, well, our system is better. And so we're going to export that to others. And I know there are really cool conversations happening at NAFSA about this stuff. Oh my goodness. I have been so excited to be president at this time and to have been able to successfully bring on Dr. Fanta Ab as our executive director, because she is exactly the right person that we need at this moment to really make this, um, this aspect of, of the field solidify as a, international education as a grassroots kind of, of idea that um, that addresses these big issues that you've mentioned, you know, to colonialism, um, racism, you know, how how do you incorporate people of of all types of backgrounds into the field as professionals? Um, the diversity in all of the different ways that we talk about diversity. So not just one way of diversity, but many different ways. 
So this is a really exciting time for us as an association to really dive into those topics. And, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned Jewel because I want to thank her for her leadership of, of AIEA um, and just give a shout out to Tennessee State University because that's where my mother went to college. So um, I first got my in, in introduction to international education um, through my mother attending Tennessee State, um, which for those of you who don't know, is a historically black college. And she spoke about the German Jewish refugee scholars who came to Nashville. So I was a young child and she explained that to me and I never forgot that and, and, and what it meant for her and for so many other black professionals. So that's all an aside, just to say that schools like Tennessee State, other HBCUs, minority serving institutions, there's some great work going on at those institutions in internationalization and international education. And that leads me to answer your question and just say that that's really the, the next wave and the next step of us to not only diversify, but to innovate as a field. So we really need to include more, um, more types of institutions in, in NAFSA, but also in NAFSA leadership and in the field. We can't continue to have the same types of, 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 of demographics um, representing the field in a way that doesn't really help us to broaden our perspectives. So there's always room to, to make the tent bigger in international education. So I think that the people who are, who are currently working in our field are dedicated, wonderful professionals. But rather than narrowing who we who we have in, in the field, we need to make it bigger. And we do that by encouraging more of these students to study abroad. That's how they catch the bug and get really excited and decide that they want to become professionals themselves. Then when they become professionals in the field, then they start to, they bring their perspectives and they look at the world in a different way. So I think it's really important for us to just to keep that in mind that, um, it's it's really important for us to have a diverse range of people um, participating at all levels of the field. We know that we need more um, um, faculty of color in general on our campuses. There are not enough of them. The diversity of faculty is low across all university campuses. Um, and that number is lower even still for faculty who lead study abroad programs. And that's where the learning happens. That's where you have faculty of, of different and diverse perspective explaining to students on the ground what you're seeing here. Here's the history behind that. How can we ask different questions? How can we have different types of excursions? How can we do different types of, of assignments and, and community building and community engagement so that students get a very strong sense of different ways of thinking about a particular problem? Um, we need much more um, multidisciplinary um, collaboration in terms of how we build programs so that students can, can benefit from different approaches um, to a specific problem when they're studying overseas. So all of those things I think will, will help us um, contribute to decolonizing the field. Um, it's something that we should be doing and actively working on but not something that we alone can solve. So I don't want members to feel overwhelmed like, like you're biting off more than you can chew. 
we alone didn't create colonialism. Um, and so we alone can't solve it, um, but we can certainly do um, our part and our, our fair share um, to make sure that we um, we make decisions that um, that that prioritize um, um, lots of questioning and inquiry, and that we are representing as many perspectives as possible. I I love that you brought the faculty into this discussion and the importance of their role. You know, they design the curriculum, but they really implement the curriculum. They make it come alive, alive, and give it value. Right, so you can throw books and, and assignments at students, but if you're not giving them the context and prompting them to really think about um, all these issues, connecting the dots, prompting those really robust conversations, um, then it's, I think it's falling flat, right? So yeah, the role is critical. And I say that as someone who who developed a faculty-led program to South Africa that I co-taught as an art historian with a global health um, professor. So we were looking at the question of public monuments with people from two completely different disciplines. And our program was in South Africa. And typically those pro programs begin with, you know, look at Table Mountain and, and some of the geographic sites. One of the first things we did was go to the townships so that students were immediately aware of how many South Africans, Black South Africans live. So we really wanted to flip the script on the, the traditional study abroad program to Cape Town so that students had a better understanding of the history and how the history informs contemporary life. So that was, um, it was not easy to, to organize that. We were really um, fighting against, you know, some of the norms, but the student experience was, was, was great. I, I have to say I had an experience of study abroad at a previous university where we couldn't get students to want to go and do study abroad in some non-traditional places. They always wanted Western Europe, France, Spain, Italy, England, uh, so I would guess that diversifying professors might get the message out more. Let's go study abroad in South Africa rather than France. Let's go study abroad in Ecuador. Uh, and I think that's a big push. Um, and then just to quickly bring in, speaking about, uh, you know, the, pol the politics of, you know, America now competing, I guess, with China in an educational arms race. When I was in Thailand, I was grant writing to get grants from USA, USAID and the uh, American Schools and Hospitals Abroad Program. Fantastic in the little city I was in in Thailand because it helped start a university so that females could actually go to university because their parents generally weren't going to send their daughters to Bangkok and Chiang Mai. And so they were missing an opportunity. So you hear you have something incredibly good females in the town getting to university, but we know that Congress isn't going to approve ASHA, American Schools and Hospitals Abroad, unless it helps expand American influence. Yes, yeah, this is this, this foreign policy connection to international education is, is very, very much, you know, something that we have to keep in mind. Um, I've worked very closely in my previous role as director of fellowships with the Fulbright U.S. Student Program. And that was just um, 
one of the, the highlights of my professional career was working with the State Department on the Fulbright program and really their, their creativity and, and imaginative thinking in how to um, bring more Americans into that program, different types of Americans. Um, and they've done such wonderful work with that. And the results are that we, you have these wonderful affinity platforms for Fulbright, Fulbright Noir, Fulbright Mariposa, Fulbright Lotus, where you can go and you can see the how many different types of Fulbrighters are out there having Fulbright experiences. And I think that that's a, a wonderful example of, of a government program that initially was very exclusive and seemed to be very elitist that has really innovated in ways that showcase American values um, overseas. And these students are thriving and they're bringing their American experience to people in places like you've mentioned, like Southeast Asia, West Africa, Southern Africa. So um, it's, it, it's, it's something that, that you know, it, it's, it's hard to do well um, and something that we have to really be very intentional about but I can say that my experience working with the Fulbright program on, on this particular initiative really produced some great results. All right, Ben, still over to you because you have fantastic questions. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we, we really explore the whole world of internationalization of, of education. And um, like I said, in our conference room with the what ifs, we, we explore a lot of different topics. and. So you wouldn't think that faculty are a big part of our marketing plan, but they have to be. They're so involved in creating connections around the world. They do these study abroad programs or other faculty to faculty partnerships with other institutions. And very often an institution's marketing or enrollment department are not aware of these great partnerships that already exist and the opportunity to promote your institution in some far-flung place and and you're just blind to it and so we're often pushing um the enrollment the admissions folks the leaders to try and inventory what you actually have in place already there's so much data within an institution that is being untapped and it tells you where to go it tells you where the opportunities are but no one's looking at it and so there's a there's a frustration there um but we we explore a lot here. There's, it's a very curious set of people. And so we um, we explore a lot and we enjoy that. And NAFSA and our role there helps us do that, you know, following the publications and the announcements and the research that NAFSA is doing guides a lot of our questions. And I mean, just on a webinar two days ago, three days ago, presented by NAFSA with some of your leadership and just the basic the crux of this has to do with world peace. I mean, it sounds trite, but drawing people together keeps them connected. And as long as we live in silos and don't know each other, then we're afraid of who the other person is. I mean, what, what might they do to me? Um, and finding out that they are very similar and have similar human needs can sometimes be a revelation. Um, so I'm, I'm espousing here, but this is what NASA does and brings people together to foster around the world. I, I just love that. 
Thank you. I, I, I feel that as, as you said, as well on my campus, you know, it's sometimes I don't run into the people and, and into, for example, as we were talking before this um, interview started, they're on a different side of campus. I love the into folks, but I may not run into them on a regular basis. So I actually have to really make a concerted effort to reach out to them to see what they're doing, because chances are there's some way for us to collaborate. So um, it's it's challenging. It's challenging. Universities are big places geographically. They're bureaucratic places. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that just the, the ability for people to sit down in a room together, especially post-COVID um, in real life, <laughs> Um, is 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 not always easy. So I th I think that that convening power of being able to to see a person, to shake a person's hand, to sit down yeah. and have coffee with that person, it really just melts you know melts away um, some of the misconceptions that can happen by email or by sending you know documents back and forth. Um, it really is um, important. It's it, as you said, it sounds trite. It sounds very basic, but it is one of the most powerful ways that we can do our work as international education professionals. All right. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, ben, do you have uh, a last thing to say? Um, I, you know, we, we get very lofty here with our curiosity and our research and everything, but it really comes down to taking all of that data and the lofty thinking and putting it into something you can actually execute that's actionable. And so, Manitra, what you were just saying, getting people into a room and actually planning out steps, um, that's so important. And, and we have the opportunity to do that with the webinars that NAFSA puts on and the meetings, the regionals, and then the national. Um, so I, I guess the last comment is just how much I appreciate what NAFSA has built over the decades. and that convening um, with, and we forget, but we try and stay focused on student success, student effectiveness, faculty effectiveness, and making student success. Um, that's what's got to happen. And, and so there's always a conflict with the industry as a business versus something that changes people's lives. But that, conf that conflict is healthy, I think, and, and it's, it's worthy of continuous debate. And so I think that's what NAFSA does. All right, and Lenitra, your chance for the very last word. Well, I'm, I've am i just been so um, thrilled to have this conversation with the two of you. And I wanna thank each of you for, for your individual contributions to NAFSA. And I think what I, I'd just love to close on is just um, a call for, for action. I'm a social justice advocate. And so every conversation to me is a call for action. And today's call for action is a call for leadership. NAFSA has a call for leadership out right now. And um, we need to always be thinking about NAFSA's next chapter. We just celebrated 75 years and it's been a wonderful opportunity to look backwards and see how the field has evolved and how the field has overcome many challenges over those 75 years, but we always have an eye to the future. And we can't be the, the world's preeminent um, international association without member leaders. And so I really want people to think about becoming member leaders at any level, including the board level. 
I never would have thought that in 2006, when I started my, my NAFSA journey, that I would be sitting in this position. And there's something wrong with that. I want everybody to think about the possibility that they could join this board of directors and that they could lead NAFSA someday. I think that the beauty of us being a member-driven association is that we're member-led, that members are on our boards of directors. So I want people to see themselves as leading the association, your ideas, your talent, your energy, your visionary thinking. We want that and we need that at NAFSA. So I am asking for you to think about how you can serve NAFSA in various ways and answer this call to action by applying to be a NAFSA leader. It's so important right now, especially. And I just thank you for this opportunity to join you today. And I'm just so excited to see what we'll do next. All right. That will be it. Thanks, everybody, for joining EdUp International Episode 1. Please follow, share, like, spread the word about EdUp International so you have just EdUpt.